This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Let me dive right into something with you this morning. You know those times when you feel stuck in that really unlikable mode? You know, the one that where you come home and you're kicking the dog and you're angry at the kids and like everything in front of you just is not correct. You know, everything in front of you is wrong. Or when you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you don't feel attractive and you're giving off this vibe that might as well be stamped on your head that says, steer clear, right? Mom's coming through this morning. (laughs) You know those times when you're really unlikable? You know those? I didn't think so. Me neither. Um, But I've heard stories about people at other churches that, you know, sometimes struggle with those. Well, those times when we are being mildly unlovable, they're kind of like the tip of the iceberg, aren't they? I mean, we can be a whole lot more unlovable than that. We can look back at uh, those times, and certainly they're not very flattering moments, but but they're only the tip. Uh, When those seasons that we consider when we were lazy and lying, or when we were depressed, constantly worried, anxious, or angry, those ones... Those were a lot worse. But when we, I think when we are the most unlovable, are those times when we are loved while we love something else or someone else instead. When we were loved, but instead of showing love in return, we loved some lesser thing. We loved money, a show, ourself, alcohol, or applause, or a picture, or, or even someone outside of our relationship, being loved, but loving something lesser. We don't get much more unlovable than those moments, those days, those seasons. And I bet, if, you know, if you were to spend some time thinking about those kinds of times, those kinds of moments, uh, that you could probably recall sometimes when you've been on one side or the other of that kind of love equation where you have been unlovable, or you have loved someone who is acting unlovable. Maybe even bringing that memory to the surface is painful. Might even kind of make you cringe just at the, at the thought of it. And, and if it is a, a cringeworthy one, I, want to, uh, I think that maybe in particular, you might be able to relate to what I'd like to share with you this morning. So because God has something very important to say about those unlovable moments, those unloved times when we were unlikable, unattractive, repulsive, or cringeworthy, those days and seasons. And this morning, I want to tell you what I believe he has to say about it and the results that he wants to bring from it. Two things. What he has to say about the, uh, the unloved and unlovable ones and the results that he wants to bring from those times. And we're going to see these ideas this morning from a book in the Bible called Hosea. Hosea is a little book in the Old Testament that starts out with a love story. 
a risky, messy, amazing, painful story, like every other love story. And the book has a unique element to it, though. And that's that it is utterly scandalous. Scandalous. Uh, the, <laughs> Uh, quite a few mornings, my wife Adele and I, we, we have breakfast with our boys. And uh, oftentimes, you know, I'll pull out a piece of scripture that maybe I've been reading or I've been studying that week and, and, and share it with them. Uh, well, this week, just out of habit, I just went ahead and opened up my Bible to the book of Hosea and was about to start sharing when I realized that what I was going to be reading was going to be raising questions with my sons that I was pretty sure I was not ready to answer that morning. It's scandalous. If you've read it before, you know what I'm talking about. Now, I know some of us in here this morning, you know, we're not yet followers of Christ. And, and so, you know, looking at the Bible, we have some, some questions. And I want you to know, I, I'm really thrilled that you're here. Uh, I want you to know, I, I know that one of the hang-ups that oftentimes we come and approach the Bible with is a question of whether or not it's accurate or if there's been lots of adjustments to it. Well, one of the thoughts I'd like to encourage you with to consider this morning is if there's been a lot of cutting and pasting going on, it's hard to believe that they missed the scandalous story of Hosea. It's hard to believe they missed this one because this is a story you'd want to make some adjustments to. Let me explain. See, this book starts out with God coming to Hosea, who's a prophet. He's a, he's a spiritual leader in the northern kingdom of Israel at a time when uh, this nation is deep into synchronizing the, the worship of the Lord with all kinds of other idols, all kinds of other religions and ideas and beliefs. And God speaks to Hosea from the very get-go, and he tells him to take a wife. And the wife that Hosea takes is the promiscuous woman, to say the least, named Gomer. Yes, Gomer. Beautiful name, right? I'm sure that that was right up there on your short list of future baby girl names, but probably not after this story. Anyways, who knows? Who knows why Gomer and Hosea, uh, you know, fell in love? Who knows why Gomer consented to marriage? Maybe it, Gomer was charmed by this passionate, dedicated, and righteous man, a man who was on a mission committed to seeing the revival of a nation. Why Hosea chose her, we also don't know. Maybe he was caught by the attention of her beauty. Maybe he was, she was someone who was responding to his message. Maybe it was just the way that she prepared lamb. Who knows? But however it happened, Gomer and Hosea were married. And for a season, things seemed to be going great. The house was peaceful. They had children that were coming into it. And Hosea chose to name the children based upon messages that God was giving to him about the nation of Israel. A name like Jezreel would have reminded people when they heard it in the marketplace about the judgment that God had brought. A name like Rohamana would have reminded the people about how God's mercy was at an end. And a name like Loami would have been most, the most crushing reminder of all that as the people had abandoned the Lord, God would now abandon his people to judgment. But the season of peace at the home wasn't to last. See, Gomer's life before Hosea was filled with some wild ways, and those wild ways resurfaced. And one day, 
she just left Hosea. She's just gone. That scandal would have been known far and wide about how the famous prophet couldn't even hold on to his wife. About how his God didn't seem to be watching over his house. Hosea joined the sad ranks of those who had been left on one side of the equation, loving one who loved another. Unloved and trying to love someone who was acting unlovable. The story of Hosea finds its mark there. This story, though, it served as an analogy to reveal what was going on between God and Israel. The God who had loved and taken Israel into a relationship with himself had now been abandoned by her. And as Gomer had traded in Hosea for someone else, God had been traded in for something else. And so judgment would fall heavy on the nation of Israel. And at the climax of this story, we pick things up in chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, And the Lord said to me, reference to Hosea, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, reference to Gomer. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethage of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be with you. Gomer's life, like many other prodigals, it didn't turn out the way that she had hoped. Being far from her husband in that day and time as her provider, she had racked up probably all kinds of debt, and it seems that she has even ended up a slave, perhaps even owned by the lover that she had turned to. Uh, the price that Hosea pays for her here is mentioned because it says something about just how far Gomer has fallen. Hosea only had to pay the fair market price set for a Hebrew slave the equivalent of 30 shekels of silver. That was the cheapest a Hebrew slave could be valued at. Now, that's not to say that this wasn't expensive for Hosea. Right? Prophets weren't exactly known for their wealth, right? No. But Hosea buys her back. He redeems her. And it's not out of duty as a husband. It's out of love. The commandment to Hosea from God was go again and love. So he goes, and you can picture him speaking tenderly to her, inviting her to come back as his wife, but that there would be a time of, of cleansing where she would be faithful to him, and, and so he would also be faithful to her. And then we find out what's standing behind this in verse 4. Verse 4 says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household, God's. Everything's going to be put on hold for this period of cleansing. Then they'll be fully restored. Verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. See, although Gomer and Israel, they were sinful and messed up. And although God out of love is judging and disciplining them, he's not finished with them, he redeems, he restores them because of his love. Not because he has to, 
or for some other reason of what they have to offer, but because of love. But you see, this isn't just a story about Gomer and Israel. It's a story about us. The last layer of this story, in fact, in chapter 14, shows it's about you and me. It's our story, too, that for you and me, even in our unlovable states, that there's good news. That wherever you're at, loved, unloved, or unlovable, God loves you. And see, the starting point for each and every one of us is right there. It's that we come into this world with a hole in our heart, and we look to fill it with all other kinds of love, and all the while, God is standing in the background with a heart that loves us, a whole heart. And even for those of us whose hearts have been broken, whose lives look like they're a mess because we were the ones who were walked out on, the unloved ones, he sees us too, and he sees that whole. And especially for those of us who have accepted his invitation of a relationship with him, that above everybody else, that when we abandon God and give ourselves over to loving some lesser thing, that we who, more than anyone else then, are acting in the most unlovable of ways and showing just how offensive and hateful, unlovable we really are, even in the midst of that. You know what God has to say about each of us in any of those states? that you are loved with an extraordinary love. You are loved with an extraordinary love. And rarely do we grasp it. Sometimes we have to think back to just what was the first moment when we realized God's love to get a taste of it. See, this is no ordinary love. This is a love that calls it like it is. It's a love that doesn't look past the wrongdoings, but instead it also doesn't leave them stuck in there. It addresses them, and it initiates, and it justifies with some awesome results. But in the story, the part of God's love that is particularly highlighted and makes this love so extraordinary is not just what it does or the price it pays, but it is the object of that love. See, did you you notice even that little seemingly random note in there about the raisin cakes? Did you catch that? The raisin cakes. That the children of Israel love worshiping these other reli- in these other religions because of the perks. Raisin cakes. One scholar pointed out that this abrupt, odd mention of this idea here is the point that their love is oddly and sadly misplaced. This is like flying with a particular airline because of the snacks that they serve. (laughs) Some of you might do that, apparently. It's odd. And sadly, misplaced devotion. And yet, we are still the object of his love. Despite that, despite us falling for the perks of money, ease, and acceptance, And that's extraordinary. That's our God, the one who loves with an extraordinary love because it is directed at a completely unworthy object. It's part of what makes it just so extraordinary. Our C.S. Lewis points out that right here in his book, The Four Loves, he says, no sooner do we believe that God loves us then there is an impulse to believe that he does so not because he is love, but because we are intrinsically lovable. Friends, you are loved 
with an extraordinary love, not because of the, what you have to offer, which is nothing, but because of who he is. It's because of who he is. And see, what that means is that, that when you're at the height of even your most unlovable moments, it does not change his love because it's who he is. That when you're at work and home and nobody can stand you, or when you've been rejected so hard it feels like a basketball was chucked at your head, or even if you don't care about this God that your parents are always talking about and making you come to church about, you're still loved. You're still loved by him with an extraordinary love because that's just who he is. I realize the objection that begins to form here because, of course, if I'm loved, why do I have to go through all this discipline? I think that part of the practical answer to that question is that, frankly, we give ourselves too much credit. We forget how prone we are to false piety or to come-and-go piety, sincere in the moment, gone in the next. We forget the words of the great hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave, the God I love. We forget just how fickle we can be, how easily we fall for the perks of this world, the raisin cakes. Discipline is actually a great act of love as it prunes the come-and-go side of our hearts. This is no ordinary love. God's love for you is an extraordinary one. And we see it in retrospect as it produces some extraordinary results. Let's look at some of those results from this passage here. I want to share three of those with you from this love. The first is our salvation. Right? Think back to verses 1 and 2. This extraordinary love doesn't just wait. It takes action. Hosea goes, he finds Gomer, he buys her, and, and, and there's none of that, you know, shape up, clean up, you know, and then I'll buy you back, none of that. The same was true for the nation of Israel, there was nothing they could do to just earn their redemption or something like that, and the same is true for us. Regardless of merit, you're loved. 1 Corinthians uh, 6, or 9, uh, 6, 19, there we go, you are not your own, you were bought by a price, with a price. The first result of God's extraordinary love is salvation. But I think that sometimes we think that even though we didn't earn it and couldn't earn it, that it is up to us to keep it. That when we sin, or if we sin enough, our salvation is on the line. We're not really sure that this extraordinary love that's given us a salvation won't break down on us if we don't take care of it. Uh, several years ago, I was a youth pastor in Spokane, Washington, and some friends of uh, my wife and I uh, gave us a car uh, to be a, a second vehicle if needed, and it was, uh, it was really kind of them. Um, there were just a couple of issues, though. Uh, it was a 1987 Honda Civic, and uh, it looked something along those lines. And it uh, had a battery that needed to be replaced. It had an oil leak that you had to stay on top of. One of the doors didn't work quite right. It had about uh, 7,100 miles on it. It was, it was a stick shift, which I was horrible at. Let me tell you, I hated driving this car. I called it my little gift of humility because everywhere I went, it seemed to give me a little dose of it. One time I was even, I was pulling out 
of the, the church parking lot um, back in uh, Washington when my, my exhaust pipe just fell off. It just, it just dropped off. You know, there's nothing much more embarrassing than, <laughs> than that moment. It was not exactly a car that I could have a lot of confidence in. But you know, that's kind of how some of us look at our salvation. We don't have much confidence in it. We're afraid if we take the wrong turn or if we don't do things just right, we don't change the gears correctly, it's going to stall out on us. If we act in enough unloving ways, God is going to cut out on us. After all, how can he keep loving, keep preserving a sinner like me? But friends, we've forgotten when we think that, that we are loved. No ordinary love. This is an extraordinary love. One that never cuts out. One that never fails. One that has already paid the price for every wrong, past, present, and future. It is paid for it all at the cross. We have a God who comes and finds us even when we go astray. We have a God that says that we are never alone. Our salvation is as firm as the cement that we're standing on. He never abandons us. We are told that nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. Friends, that's only the result of an extraordinary love. But this extraordinary love, it, it produces another result, and that's our restoration. Think back in the story with me. In verse 3, Hosea has bought Gomer back and made her his wife. And talked about this faithful celibacy time that, that, that's going to mirror what God did with the nation of Israel. And that list there that then is mentioned in verse 4 of king and prince, sacrifice and pillar, ephod and household God. All that's about is this list of the menagerie that has become this following of the Lord mixed with all these other religions. And what is being said is that all of that is going to come to a complete halt. There's going to be this period of time where none of that is going to be going on. But the, after that, the people would return and seek, right? Repent to the Lord, and eventually they would be fully restored. Same is true for us. The same is true for us. We are being restored, but someday that restoration will be finally and fully completed. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. See, the promise of restoration, it offers hope to a weary soul. It offers hope. See, friends, we need to be reminded that we can have confidence not just in our salvation, but also in our restoration. But here... There's a bit of a humility check that I think we need this morning. That honestly, we, we don't have our act all that together. Because we are in the process of restoration. It is not yet complete. We're told that that's going to be completed another day. We're in the process of it. Certainly we can see change and growth here and now. But what's more exciting is that someday our restoration will be finished. 
And so the encouragement to all of us is to stay authentic in this journey. So don't ignore, don't resist what maybe God is trying to pull up to the surface in your life. We are all in process. And so there's no shame in coming clean about what God is doing in all of us. The shame is in trying to hide it. Jesus is restoring work. It happens in the light. If you've been here for a few of my messages, you know that this has been a theme that I have continued to come back to. It's been a theme I've wanted to keep surfacing. And I want you to know why. I believe that one of the areas that we need to grow in at, in our church is with this. It's with the refusal to get honest and to confess our sins to one another. Others of us, we don't even, we don't even want to admit our hurts, let alone our, our sin. But the church that Jesus has called us to be is a safe place to admit our hurts, our habits, our hang-ups. And I know that God is using the ministries and the teaching and the groups of this church to surface those things, to bring them to the light. I know for myself, you know, in looking through this passage this past week, it stirred up in my life this prayer that said, Lord, forgive my self-righteousness. I don't know about you, but I can find myself thinking that everyone else's errors around me are <laughs> what's really important. I can start getting stuck in pride that blinds me to how unlovable I'm acting. But God's extraordinary love, it does just that. It surfaces those things to restore us as it pulls that up to the surface to be dealt with. And in our church, that is what needs to happen. It needs to happen more so in our groups. It needs to happen across our communities. And I believe that we are growing in that area, but that we need to keep going further. We need to keep humbling ourselves to admit the restoring work that God wants to do in our lives. So let me lovingly encourage you to start peeling off the masks as a result of this extraordinary love. Stay authentic with the Lord as he continues to restore you, knowing he will bring it to completion. Amen? Now on this note, I want to note one last result that you can see from this truth. And that's our preparation. Do you know what this experience did in the life of Hosea? You know what it did? It prepared him. It prepared him to be able to preach this message. God used this horrible, scandalous story to show Hosea the depths of God's grief over sin and the depths of his love for his people. And I know within our congregation that many of you know what it's like to be a Hosea. You know what it's like where you have loved, but the other hasn't loved you back, but instead chosen to love someone or something else. And many times, your attempts to redeem that relationship didn't pan out. Let me encourage you. Don't let it jade you, but let it prepare you. Keep turning to God's extraordinary love to be able to keep forgiving be able to look at it in a sense where you are not excusing. You're not avoiding natural consequences, but forgiving. And let it shape within you a message of just how much God loves 
and longs to redeem his loved ones. Because knowing that helps you know that God is in the business of using broken people like yourself to be the objects of his extraordinary love so that they can show extraordinary love. Because friends, after all, if we're humble enough to consider just how unloving we've been at work, at home, at school, with our friends, and even by ourselves, and we see just how extraordinary God's love is for us, and then, how can that but stir up in our hearts a deep desire to return to God, to seek after him in his goodness, to commit the unlovable ones to him, and to stop trying to ignore all of our own hang-ups, but to instead be authentic, knowing that we are loved with an extraordinary love that saves, restores, and will prepare us to show extraordinary love to those who need it most. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we heartily confess, God, we do not deserve your love. God, we heartily confess that we are in desperate need to be reminded of this truth. God, we recognize we need your love. We recognize that we are left to ourselves. We're unlovable. That only until you conform us to the image of your son, Jesus. God, we recognize that the unlovable ones in our lives need your love. Prepare in us, God, prepare in our hearts that message. Prepare in us, shape in us the forgiveness, the love that's desperately needed for the situations in this room. And may we lean upon your Holy Spirit to find that love that is so needed. We thank you for your extraordinary love, and we love you in return.